Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here, isn't it, as God's people? After a, uh, a four-week break, uh, we've come back to uh, this series of uh, that we've called "Call to Be Saints." As we look at these two letters of Paul to the Corinthians, uh, the series title comes from Paul's opening words in one Corinthians, when he describes the Corinthian Christians as those who are called to be saints. Uh, and even though he addresses all kinds of problems that the Corinthians were having and were causing, uh, he reminds them, you still are saints, you still are God's people, despite what you um, go through and what your battles and struggles are. Well, Second Corinthians was written uh, about a year after First Corinthians. Uh, as Bible scholars have looked at uh, the book of Acts and other, other things and tried to piece together Paul's itinerary at this time. Um, it's thought that after his first letter of 1 Corinthians and uh, the rebukes that Paul gives them in that, uh, Paul uh, visited Corinth briefly on his way from Ephesus into the region of Macedonia, but there was a confrontation of some kind with someone in the church who obviously didn't like what he wrote in his first letter. Uh, Maybe it was one of the leaders. Uh, It may have been the man that he had instructed them to excommunicate because of his sexual immorality. Whatever happened though, uh, he describes it in chapter 2 as a painful visit. So painful that he decided not to visit them on the way back from Macedonia, even though he'd told them that he would. But then things changed again. He received more news while he was in Macedonia. The man who had opposed him didn't actually speak on behalf of the whole church. In fact, the Corinthians were standing firm in the Gospel. They actually listened to Paul's first letter and they were acting on it and following the things that he had instructed them in. Now the fact that we have these two letters today, the fact that they're included in the Bible, that they're considered as scripture, is testament to the fact that the Corinthians saw these letters as the word of God. They had seen God do that work among them through those letters, through his word. One of the earliest Christian writings outside of the New Testament that we have is the letter called First Clement. Uh, it was actually, it begins by saying from the church in Rome to the church in Corinth. It was written about 15 to 20 years after uh, the time of First and Second Corinthians. So that shows us not only had the Corinthian church survived the difficulties they were facing, they continued to stand firm, Uh, they were still continuing as a church, although they had some ongoing problems that the letter of First Clement seeks to deal with. So we can have a confidence that God's word will do its work among us. He will do that work to bring us as a church to maturity. But also we should never think that we've made it, that we've become the perfect church. That will only happen when 
Jesus returns and makes all things new, including us, his church. So Paul opens this letter and he uses this word comfort ten times in five verses, verses three to seven. Clearly it's the main theme here. He also uses two other words that really are synonyms. Uh, Affliction he uses three times and suffering he uses three times. So the father's comfort in the midst of sufferings is the theme in which he opens this second letter. He's not the only New Testament writer that does this. The book of James opens with these words, Counter all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter, in his first letter, after uh, reminding his readers of the living hope that they have in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Thessalonians at the start of his letter to them, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Remember, Paul is writing this from Macedonia and Achaia is the region in which which Corinth is located. Now this uh, passage here in particular is key to understand uh, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. See how he connects much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So while Paul doesn't mention explicitly the Holy Spirit in our passage in 2 Corinthians, It's also to the Spirit's work that he's referring when he talks about comfort. In Greek, it's the word paraklesis, which means coming alongside someone. And someone who comforts a person in that way is called a paraclete. And paraclete is the word that Jesus used a number of times to refer to the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that's that word, comforter or paraclete, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Firstly, we see that the spirit reminds us of all that Jesus has said. It's the work of the spirit that opens our eyes and our ears to see and to hear Christ, to understand and to grasp all that he said and all that he did as our Saviour. Then, a little bit later, Jesus says, the helper, the paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. But when the helper comes, I'm sorry, no, what I've missed there is verse 27 which goes on and says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Sorry, I missed that verse off there. So being reminded of all that Jesus has said isn't just for our own benefit. It's so that just as the Spirit bears witness to us about Christ, so we too then walk in the footsteps of the Apostles and bear witness to Christ as well. The Spirit propels us into the mission of God, as we saw last week in the mission of the church, the mission to proclaim the message of the cross to the nations. One last thing that Jesus says as he uses this word, paraclete, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you... Oh, That's the verse I should have showed. This is the one. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So, what work does the Spirit do, the the helper, the comforter do as we bear witness to Jesus in the world, well, he brings that truth to bear on those who hear the message. He convicts the world, he convicts people in the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So see how that puts a different spin on this word comfort than the way that we're used to using it today. In our modern uh, therapeutic ways of thinking of comfort, uh, we think purely in terms of psychological categories, don't we? How a person feels about their suffering. So comfort in that sense is coming alongside a person, consoling them, helping them to feel better, which is a good thing to do. We certainly should do that. But of course the dilemma we face, we know, don't we, that we cannot say to that person, I understand how you feel because we haven't experienced exactly what they have experienced. We can show compassion, we can show support, we can be a listening ear, we can give the assurance of our commitment to hanging in there with them. But our passage this morning speaks of another level of comfort, one of actually sharing in sufferings, where we can actually say to someone, I know how you feel because I'm going through exactly what you're going through. See how we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings in verse 5 and then in verse 7 we share in one another's sufferings. Something had happened in Corinth between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 
Remember how in 1 Corinthians Paul rebuked them for their prosperity gospel? The idea that uh, if they followed Jesus then they would experience worldly success and prestige and power. And he pointed to the apostles whom he described as the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things, as they were persecuted and slandered and reviled because of the gospel. Well, it seems that, as I said earlier, the Corinthians took his words to heart. They stood firm on the gospel message of Christ crucified and they then began to suffer for being Christians. Their suffering had knocked them off their pedestal and had forced them to rely on God. So the comfort that he speaks of here isn't about uh, helping them escape from their sufferings but about what they are to think and what they are to do when in the midst of suffering. The comforting work of the Holy Spirit isn't merely psychological or emotional. It's a very dynamic thing. It's a spurring on into action. Their suffering was coming as a direct result of their involvement in Christ's mission. As they proclaimed the message of the cross, the message of the suffering crucified Messiah, they found that they suffered as a result of that and so their sufferings were a participation in Christ's sufferings. The Holy Spirit's work of propelling them into God's mission had brought about this suffering, this persecution, but their right response to persecution wasn't to draw back and to lick their wounds and to seek therapy, but to press on, to know the, the, the comforting, empowering work of the ongoing work of the Spirit. When the writer of Hebrews addressed Christians who were being persecuted and who were being pressured to return to the temple, he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. That's true biblical comfort or paraclesis. That's the work that the Spirit does, not just helping someone to feel comforted, but calling them to stand up, to be tall and straight and to press on into whatever God has called them to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. You may remember five years ago this image on our TV screens of the 21 Egyptian Christians lined up on the beach Moments before they were beheaded by the ISIS militia. Those who actually saw the video of this happening testify that each of these men simply confessed the words Lord Jesus Christ the moment before they were killed. That's all they had time to utter. They'd been given the option of converting to Islam and having their lives spared, but they refused to deny Christ. 
So they were enabled by the Spirit to remain faithful to Christ right to the very end. They knew the comfort of the Holy Spirit even at the point of death. Now, Archbishop Angelos, who's an Egyptian Coptic church leader who lives in the UK, said this about the persecution of Christians in his own home country and around the world. The interesting thing is we live it with a sense of resilience but we've never fallen into a state of victimhood or triumphalism. We realise that it is the cross of Christ. It's not the end of the road because there is a resurrection that comes after the cross and the empty tomb. And so it is in that hope that we continue to live and it is in that hope that we continue to carry that cross knowing that it will be removed from us. It's the same risen Jesus that comforted those men whose resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection. The risen Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who's head over all things, who pours out the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, He enables us to stand firm and to maintain our witness to his saving power. As verse 9 told us, receiving the sentence of death, Paul said, was to make us rely on not ourselves but on God who raises the dead. I want to skip now to the... the, uh, end of this passage uh, before looking at some very practical implications for us. When Paul um, says it is God who raises the dead, he's not just referring to Jesus' resurrection but he's hinting at the Old Testament uh, witness that God is the God who raises the dead and he He leads us particularly to the story of Abraham. And this is important for us to see, particularly in light of the fact that this letter, remember, was written to a church that was uh, predominantly made up of Gentile Christians. They would have had little knowledge, if any knowledge, of the Jewish scriptures before the gospel came to them. There were some Jews, there were some God-fearers who were Gentiles who attended the synagogue but hadn't fully converted. But by and large, they were people who'd come out of pagan religion to faith in Jesus. But the Jesus in whom they believed is the Jewish Messiah. He'd come in fulfilment of all the promises and all the types and all the, the shadows through that 2,000 year history of the people of Israel. The history that began with Abraham. These Gentiles and us Gentiles have been grafted into the olive tree of Israel. We've been brought in, we've been included in the covenant. We are the spiritual children of Abraham 
with the same status in God's family as any Jew who also believed. I know something of my family history. Uh, The line of Kriegs has been traced back as far as uh, the 18th century in part of Europe that's now modern day Poland. But that's not my true lineage because I'm in Christ. My family tree is not based on the flesh, it's based on faith. All who live by faith in Christ share the faith of Abraham. And so we're Abraham's children, not according to the flesh, but according to the promise. God wasn't vacillating when he made the promise to Abraham. It wasn't maybe if things turn out, if I still feel like keeping my promise down the track, I'll do this. No, God swore an oath. He entered into a binding covenant with Abraham through sacrificing animals. But let's look at what happened in Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now I want to focus here on that last verse, verse 6, because the Hebrew word for believe is aman, from which we get the word amen. So Abraham heard the promise of God and he uttered his amen to God for his glory. This amen was a, was a cry of faith. He knew that the promise would come to pass not because of his own works but because of the works of God. Now, this is a, a key verse. It's quoted numerous times in the New Testament to help us understand that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. For Abraham, faith meant relying on God to do what he said he would do based on God's reliability, not his own. So that's why in Hebrews 11 we're told by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So see how Abraham, not him but his son, faces the sentence of death and as a result he relies on the God who raises the dead. So we now today 
We speak in unison with Abraham. Abraham is the model of faith. We also, as we're told, utter our amen to God for his glory. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. If Abraham had good reason to trust God, we have more. That which Abraham just saw in types and in shadows, we see in reality because Jesus has not been figuratively raised from the dead. He's been literally raised. So see what God now does in us when we receive by faith these fulfilled promises in the risen Jesus. Firstly, we're told that he establishes us. This too is an allusion to Abraham. Remember the promise. Abraham would be the father of a great nation. Abraham and his descendants would be established as God's people so that through them all the nations of the world will be blessed. He does the same work in us. He establishes us, confirms us as his children. Secondly, he anoints us. This is a really significant term. Literally, anointed means Christed, or I should say Christ means the anointed one. And anointing using oil was reserved for kings and priests. Those were the commission to rule, to lead the people. But now we're told we, we are a royal priesthood because we're established in Christ, in the anointed one. We share in his anointing. We share in his priestly ministry of proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Thirdly, we're told that He's put his seal on us. Now this is a mark of ownership. It's a drop of wax or or of clay with the imprint of the king's ring. Uh, It would be attached to uh, items in the royal treasury, to scrolls that would mark it out as royal property. And it would say whatever is contained in this scroll is authorised by the king. We see images, don't we, in the book of Revelation of people with the name of God on their foreheads. This is the seal, the royal imprimatur by which the Father declares us to be his own, bought by the precious blood of Christ. But not only that we belong to him, we are authorised by him, authorised to be his ambassadors. Fourthly, he's given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So again, here's the work of the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who works in our hearts to give us not just an objective assurance, knowing that the gospel's true, but a subjective assurance, knowing it's true for me, that in Christ I stand firm in the promise of the resurrection. At that day, I'll receive in full what he's accomplished for me. The Spirit guarantees 
that everything Christ has done I will receive. Now, there are two very practical implications that come out of these truths, aside from the obvious call to entrust ourselves to the God who's proven himself to be faithful in Jesus. And they come from the way that Paul talks about his actions and the Corinthians' actions. Firstly, the Corinthians are called to help us by prayer. And he anticipates being the recipient of blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now, contrary to what we might uh, think, the absolute sovereignty of God over all things and the, the certainty of everything that he wills being accomplished in Christ is actually all the more reason for us to pray. We, can't, we must not say, if God's purposes are already set, then what's the point of praying? Because I'll, I'll never be able to change his mind. But the purpose of prayer is not to change God's mind. It's not to manipulate him. Prayer is about God changing our mind so that we think and we desire in line with his will so that we can then be equipped and qualified to be participants in what he's doing. So it's not so much that God acts in response to our prayers as if we give him an idea that he hadn't previously thought about and so uh, he changes his plan. Rather, God positions us to get a sense of his sovereign plan what he is doing so that we in our hearts are moved to pray to ask for things in line with his will. It's his gracious fatherly care that through prayer he includes us in what he's doing. So Paul can say, help us with your prayers because he wants the Corinthians to be participants with him in his ministry. Secondly, the area of planning. Paul made his plans in faith, trusting that that was what the Spirit wanted him to do. So he made promises in 1 Corinthians that he would visit them on the way back from Macedonia. Paul had already experienced the Spirit's leading. Uh, The Spirit had prevented him from going to one place and had given him a vision to call him to another place. But that didn't mean that he always had a supernatural experience when he was making his plans. If we have the Spirit dwelling in us, and if he is giving us the mind of Christ and a desire to do the Father's will, then we can trust that he'll guide us through the use of our sanctified Minds and our hearts as we consider what's before us and as we step out in faith. This gives us a wonderful freedom. We can make plans and we can know that ultimately if we make a mistake, it will never overturn the Father's purpose for us. We can 
welcome the supernatural leading of the Spirit when, they, when it comes, but we, we don't need to be frozen to the spot, waiting for something spectacular to happen before we step out in faith and move. Walking by faith necessarily recognises that we're frail, that we're, we're weak, that we won't always clearly discern what God wants and may from time to time head off in a direction that needs to be corrected by him. But faith says that's okay because I'm willing to have the Spirit change my course because it's not about my will, it's about his. That also enables us to show grace to one another when their plans change, when they've promised something to us and then something happens and they're no longer able to fulfil that promise. We can give them the benefit of the doubt that their promises were made sincerely and in love and any change of plans also come from that motivation of love as we'll see next week. So, Receive in your hearts this comforting work of the Holy Spirit. Trust in the Father's promises, his faithfulness demonstrated in his promises kept in Jesus. And pray and make plans with confidence, knowing and trusting that whatever he leads you in, he will enable you to do it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these uh, opening words of of, uh, 2 Corinthians and the word of comfort and assurance uh, that they give to us that you are always faithful, that whatever you promise you will always fulfil because we see that clearly in Jesus Christ. Father, we rejoice to hear the words that every promise of yours is yes in him. We ask that this assurance will so transform us that we will be people who are able to willingly follow your Spirit's lead and to to seek to make plans for your glory and out of love for one another, knowing that whatever, whatever our future holds, whether it's affliction, or suffering, or comfort and ease, that you will use us for your glory. Amen. Let's stand and uh, sing our final hymn, which reflects that our life is not our own, because our Redeemer paid the price. Let's sing.